Welcome to Outside Voice Inside. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and this episode is titled Cell Therapy. This week, we discuss various aspects and modalities of therapy with our special guest, Dr. Joy Madison. So grab a seat, and we hope you enjoy Outside Voice Episode 17, Cell Therapy, where we talk about all the greatness of mental health and therapy. But before we do all of that, we must get into these intros. Uh, we have, I'm going to introduce our guest first, Dr. Joy Madison. Um, I have known Joy, and I'm going to tell you guys everything that she's involved with. I've met her when she was the owner of her functional fitness company, Eat, Sleep, Sweat. This is before she had this huge amount of hair on her head. She short, I think it was shorter than my hair. It was. We An art show because we have a mutual friend, the great Terry Terry Lacey, and we. Uh, she introduced me to Joy, and I think I think Logan was with us too. My daughter, you guys. And she looked up and she was like, oh, she's so tall. And ever since then, I kid you not, Joy, Logan has been like, I must be tall. I must become tall. And I think <laughs> met you. But Joy has gone on to do a bunch of amazing things since then. I feel like it's because she's a Sagittarius because we cannot sit still and do one thing. She has done tons of shit. Um, Founder and lead content creator for Heal You Academy, which is an internal platform reserved for graduates of her programs, where she helps them with um, self-guided online courses that promote socio-emotional wellness. Um, she's been a program manager for Sisters Mentally Mobilized. I was in one of her excuse me, one of her cohorts. It was amazing. It was so that I could become a mental health advocate, but she helps all kinds of women for the California Black Women's Health Project make us uh, increase our mental health awareness, decrease stigmas and promote advocacy throughout black communities for black women. She also serves on the board of Color the Water, which is a nonprofit organization that reclaims the history of and representing diversity and surf culture. My mouth's not working today. I think this is one of the most amazing things that she does because when you think about surfers, you don't think about black people all the time. You know, it's not like basketball, oh, black people, football, black people. But she's been doing this shit for a while, y'all. And I feel like it promotes awareness and gives other black people an opportunity to be like, oh, I can do something different. I don't have to just stay in a box. So through, excuse me, throughout all of that, she has become a doctor also. <laughs> so she focuses on um, marriage and family therapy, and that is why we have her on today because of her trauma-informed approach to all things mental health. So, give it up for Dr. Joy Madison. <laughs> Thank you for being with us today, Joy. I'm excited for having me. I am so excited to jump into this conversation. It's going to be juicy. Yes, as y'all know, I am. Of moonlighting as a writer here and there, 
wonderful mother of an amazing future leader of America, Logan, aka Bug. And you know, this week I just I've just been focusing on my mental health and also my physical health. So I have a great chiropractor, hence these, if this makes it into the, the intro video, I have these red circles all over me where I've been cupped. So I haven't been harmed, y'all. This is medical treatment. <laughs> I'm so mad I haven't been harmed. <laughs> it's important to give that context because what is going on? Yeah. Right. We don't need to start no rumors. No, so no, no. <laughs> moving Not on to my co-host. Hey y'all, it's me, Tam Joyner. Um, your email specialist, graduation auditor, and event coordinator uh, at the university in which I work. I'm doing so much. It's graduation season for us. We're late to the game. And uh, I'm all over the place this week. But thank you all for being here and listening to this episode of Outside Voice Inside. I'm super excited. We're going to be talking about therapy. And I cannot wait. But first... We're going to talk about music, our relationship to music. Sin. This week, I've been keeping it, well, it's, I'm lying. I haven't been keeping it low key. I've been listening to Little Yachty and Logan was looking at me like, what on the planet earth is wrong with you? I don't know why I just get in this mood where I have to listen to music that makes absolutely no sense to my age group, but I still love it. So in between Yachty, I was listening to Molly Music. He has a song with Jasmine Sullivan called Love By You. Oh. That's the one I've had on repeat all week. It's so good. Joy, add it to your playlist if it's not oh. on there. You saw me pick up my phone. Did you see? Because I'm about to add that. I love both Molly and Jasmine. So them together is about to be really bananas. And I don't understand why I didn't know this until right now. But I'm going to thank you for putting that me on. That song is on my, I have a song, a playlist of love songs, and that's one of the songs that's on my, on my playlist, my love songs. Let me tell you, Tara, when I was in the cohort, I was so excited anytime Joy was facilitating, because her playlist, you could have just sat and listened to music for the whole hour. And that's how I <laughs> So, Joy, what you've been listening to this past week? Ooh, I just want, I want to say one thing about this, because you have turned me up. Jasmine, you mentioned that you're moonlighting as a writer right now. Jasmine Sullivan's Hotels album is really what thrusts me into exploring my voice as a writer because I had to get my thoughts out about what this brilliant project stirred up in me and what I thought it was representing in the stories of women all over the world around mm -hmm. our sexuality and our spirituality and how that informs our identity and how we move through relationships and I, I just was like, I got to do this. And I, I, it came out as writing because that was the only way I knew once I get the thoughts out, I can then rearrange them. Because if I just mm -hmm. talk about it, they're going to come out all kinds of ways. And you're going to be like, what? Let <laughs> <laughs> me just write it all out. And then I can go back and rearrange it into something that makes sense. And that's really how I decided that this year I'm going to also begin to sharpen my voice as a writer. So I wanted to, to say that and to Thank you again for putting me onto this song because I'm gonna I'm I'm turn it up as soon as y'all, as soon as we wrap this podcast. It's so good. Did you post that, what you wrote about ho hotels? I, I haven't yet. It was my intention. So then I had a big old plan. I'm gonna post it after I see her live in concert and then her concert got postponed because she had COVID. And then I didn't do what I was supposed to do to get my tickets for the 
for the show that they did after it was a mess. So I never got to see her live and the post is just sitting there because I had a whole plan, but you know how the plans go. So it's still there and I probably will do it. Um, just got to figure out when and why and, and how, how to make it make sense, but it's coming, it's coming up. This is awesome. And I know we supposed to be getting your song, but I did this and I haven't posted any of these and maybe you are the inspiration I needed, but I wrote about Rihanna's album um, that came out where everyone swore it was about Chris. And mm -hmm. Yes. So mm -hmm. I did this, each song I dissected for Anti. I did it for Lemonade, for Beyonce. I did it for Kendrick's, um, the one where it's a bunch of black guys in front of the White House. The Pimple Butterfly? Yes, I did it for the Pimple Butterfly. And I've never posted any of these things. Why? Inspiration. I, because you have to fine tune this. Like you can't just, like Joy said, you can't just throw that out there. You gotta arrange it. So I'm gonna go back in one of my 5,367 journals and pull this stuff out so I can post it. And it's, I think it's some of the content I'm gonna put on my website. So thank you for the inspiration. Um, I would like to say that anti is about Chris Brown and I'm gonna stick to it. I don't care what nobody <laughs> says. I'm a hold to it. And I, the reason I say that anti is about Chris Brown is because after that incident, she put out record after record after record. And I feel like she never as a person was able to process the trauma that occurred in their relationship. And when anti came out, so many of the songs can apply to their relationship. It's especially, you know, the one I say when she be talking crap about Karuchi in the songs. Yes. <laughs> so it's just, I'm just, it's very much about Chris Brown because at that point, by the time she got to that point, she was like, now I'm about to say everything. And this is my last record and I'm not doing another one. She hasn't done one since. So, <laughs> and now she got a baby. So. Shout out to the little baby. Yes. The baby. Shout, out, shout out to the baby. Um, oh, it's, it happened. The baby is here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> you, they just announced it yesterday. Like she had the baby last week, I believe, but they just, mm -hmm. they just announced it the other day. Mm -hmm. But, um, as far as music goes for me this week, I, um, I have title and I only listen to title, but I do have a Spotify account that sometimes I go back and visit. Um, Cause I just don't listen to music on Spotify anymore. Like I used to, but I've been listening to the podcast that Sunita keep telling me to stop listening to, but, uh, <laughs> Which but one? I, no, remember I said, I keep listening to those fiction podcasts and you're like, oh, yes. I'm supposed to be doing research joy. And she is listening to podcasts for pleasure. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, never apologize for pleasure. I'm just going <laughs> to. This thing. <laughs> but I, I've revisited um one of my old playlists and um one of the songs that's absolutely one of my favorite songs is uh it's called Humankind and it's by Alice Russell. And a lot of people don't know Alice Russell because Alice Russell became popular around the same time that Amy Winehouse became popular and Amy Winehouse took mm -hmm. off. And Alice Russell took off a little, but her audience, uh, I mean, they should have the same audience because they sound very similar, but mm -hmm. um, 
you know, when Amy Winehouse came out, I wanted to find all the white girls in Britain that sounded like Black people. So I went on a hunt and I stumbled across Alice Russell and she became my favorite person in the world. Um, but Humankind is one of my uh, favorite songs by her. And so I was on this whole Alice Russell kick this week. So that was what was on repeat for me this week. Awesome. What about you, Joy? So now I didn't know I was supposed to pick one song. <laughs> no, it can be anything you've been, your relationship with music this week. That's all it is. Because y'all knew I was going to come in here and say, Kendra. <laughs> I did. I did. We did. Because okay. I know it's a weekend, but yes, I'm still listening to that album for so many reasons. Um, some of which I'm sure will come up throughout this, this episode since it is so heavily connected to and deeply rooted in what I believe to be his own therapeutic process and the way that it's been presented. But um, what I'll say initially about the album is that it did fully what I expected a Kendrick Lamar album to do, which for me was, first of all, be a complete project mm -hmm. and not just some strung together singles but a complete project that told a story. I fully expected him to come in, given that his full his last album was five years ago and talk about all the things, right? Mm -hmm. That have happened culturally, historically, and then personally in his own life. I remember that, you know, he was about to have a kid and was getting married. So I, I fully expected it to be about all of the things and it was about all of the things. And sonically and thematically, I just, feel so much and as a therapist and as somebody who is who's sort of cornerstone of my work is emotional intelligence and trauma-informed emotional intelligence I am a huge fan of feeling right like feel what you feel and so having a tool <laughs> that allows me to sort of just go like I want to go feel things and go right to it has been like incredibly cathartic in a lot of ways. And so it's the music for the music, but it's also the experience for me. And so I just, I've been revisiting that and I just feel like there's layers and layers to unpack and uncover and understand with each listen. So I'm still, I'm still top to bottom, front to back, listening to Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers over here. Yes, <laughs> it's it's playing throughout the week yeah. for me. <laughs> I, I listen to it with, Logan too. She actually likes his music. She actually likes all of TDE's music. Mm -hmm. But um, I specifically listen to Auntie Diaries with her. Oh, how do you feel about this? And when she heard the word, she was like, "Why what? is he saying that?" So yeah. it's a good conversation starter. It is. It very much. And I think. Okay, I don't want to go super deep dive, but I really do. <laughs> I really do feel like. Going back, if we're talking about like the spectrum of Kendrick's albums, right, from Good Kid, Mad City to now, I really feel like it's been progressively inching towards like, okay, y'all, it's time for you to see yourself, right? Like, it, we got to talk, it's some stuff we need to talk about. Like, if, if damn, and well, if To Pimple Butterfly was like, I'm calling out systemic issues, right, with King Kunta and we gonna be all right. And just if, if that album was about that and Dan was about his spiritual journey of understanding how to transmute that for himself 
and to, to be a light for the people, then I feel like he's now arrived at a place where it's like, all right, if we're doing this, we got to really do this. And it's time for us to talk about some shit that we're doing to ourselves. Right. Yes. I agree. That is, yeah. So yeah, I'm 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 gonna leave it. I'm gonna leave it and just see what comes out as we talk because I I don't want this to turn into a whole Kendrick episode because it could very easily. Yeah. See, we all on the same page. Yes, we all on the same page. So remember, we have to have topics so we don't stray because you know we could talk about this the whole episode. Yes. So current events. Tamara's gonna take it off for us. And Joy, definitely chime in with your opinions about these current events because you may have heard about them or read about them in the media this week too. So for anybody who knows me outside of the podcast, um, I have been a fan of sports for a very, very long time, but I have always had an issue with college sports as when I was in college, I was very close friends with uh, young men that played football and played basketball and were, didn't have money for things. You know, mm-hmm. I was I was mama. I, I drove them places. I bought them things. I took them places that they needed to be because they had to be there at certain times. That was just kind of my thing. But they were my friends. But um, now in the NCAA, they've made it so that college students can now make money um, while they're um, in college, which is great because a lot of these young men and young women come from low income homes and they're living the life on the college campus while their parents are at home struggling. So that's always been a big thing. And then people have gotten in trouble, i.e. let's talk about Reggie Bush, how they took all those things from him when his family didn't have money because the school was paying his family in a house to live in, paying their rent and things like that. Um, well, this week, our, um, I'm not even going to call him a friend. I live in Georgia. We hate all things Alabama. But uh, <laughs> Nick, Saban, um, Nick Saban decided to come out of his mouth. And his real gripe with is with Jimbo Fisher, who is the um, is the coach at Texas A&M. But in trying to shoot a shot at Jimbo, he um, shot at Deion Sanders instead and uh, accused Deion Sanders and Jackson State University, a historically Black um, institution, of paying a student athlete a million dollars to commit to Jackson State versus going to another D1, um, more popular uh, school that he'll get more exposure at. Instead, he chose to go to Jackson State. When in reality, uh, Jackson State doesn't have the budget to pay this boy a million dollars. People think that Deion Sanders is making a lot of money at Jackson State. What Deion Sanders has done at Jackson State is he has maneuvered in a way that Jackson State has endorsement money so that the school can get money and he can get money, but it also brings school to their football, I mean, attention to their football program. Um, Nick Saban makes $3 million a year, if not more. That's just from, that's from the school by itself. There's plenty much more to that. Their uh, football budget is in the double digits, almost probably triple digits as far as, you know, making money off the football program. And he is throwing stones when now all of his skeletons are finna jump out the closet and everybody is finna tell all the business 
about how you pay people when they play for you. Like now that men are in the NFL, they don't owe you anything. They can drop dime and tell it all because you're mad because this young man didn't want to come to your school. You, I, Yes, this young man was the top high school prospect. Deion Sanders is a talker. Like it's a, it's, you know, the whole thing about recruiting. It's a, it's like a car salesman. Mm-hmm. Deion gave, show him what was a better deal. And like I have said before, Deion Sanders has something on his side at Jackson State that a lot of schools do not. Is that um, Deion Sanders has friends that are former NFL players that he can hire to be coaches. So if I am a young boy and I grew up watching Deion Sanders play and he was my hero, why on God's green earth would I not want to play for him if I had the opportunity? I would take that. T.O. is his wide receiver coach. Why on God's green earth wouldn't I want to be coached by Terrell Owens? Like, so it's, it, it, there's a different appeal that Jackson State has outside of what, you know, Nick Saban and his people are talking. And then, you know, for me, there's the whole optics of NCAA and NFL being like slave master situations. Anyway, that's a whole other story. I could go deeper into it. But yeah, that was, um, you know, something that, interested me the whole week just because I am a a football fan and just the dynamics the optics none of it looks good Nick Saban just sit down and drink your coffee and (laughs) smoke your cigars drink your mind your business in Alabama mind your business stay out of Mississippi business stay out of Georgia business stay out of Texas business mind your Alabama ass business Nick Saban but Joy, you were a collegiate All-American athlete. So how do you feel about when you hear things like this? Oh, so many, so many things. Um, so I talk about this a lot from a, a few different angles. First, let me say this. I played water polo. Literally no one cares about water polo. Right. Wow. This is not a sport that brings millions of dollars into any program, into any institution. We're not filling stadiums or arenas or pool decks with anybody other than our parents and siblings, okay? Like this is coming to our games. That being said, even as a water polo player, I was at a division one school and I was on scholarship and there are so many perks that come with that, right? Mm -hmm. And The other side of that is, to your point, many of us, right, myself included, come from families that don't have all their needs being met intended to. Like, I'm walking up to the line to get my books at the start of the school semester, and there's a line out the library around the whole campus. I'm walking straight to the front, and they got my books already stacked for me, giving me the stack, and I'm walking out, ain't pulled out wallet the first. Everybody else is trying to figure out how they're going to pay for their books, waiting in line, trying to get in, make sure they got the book before the semester start. And I'm just, you know, I go prancing in. Let me grab my book. So I'm having a very different experience inside of this institution than I've had in any other place in my life where I am being prioritized in a way that is not normal for me. And where the worries about basic survival of when you're going to get stuff done and food on the table and roof over the head, like those things are gone for me in this context, not necessarily for anyone else in my family outside of that. And so if we're talking about a player who you have brought into your program to perform at a particular level, 
because you see their skill, you see their talent, and you want to capitalize on that because that's what we're doing, right? Part of you nurturing them is making sure that their worries are quelled. Mm -hmm. That by making sure that their families are good. Mm -hmm. It's not about paying families to incentivize players because we need to do this to do. If your program is good, I'm going to come play for you because your program is good. Yes. Right. Right. That's it. And if you have an opportunity to support a player and their family and make sure that they can fully show up for the talent that you see that they are, then you do that because as a human being, you care about them. Mm -hmm. And then the added benefit is you get the bonus of them playing for your program and all that they're going to bring. Extra money, extra wins, extra eyeballs on your, your, your program, whatever that is, right? So... If we can just start to talk about this just in logical terms, mm-hmm. making it like these kids, these athletes, these players never had a voice. I'm thinking about whenever I was disrespected by my coach after my first season, I took the weekend to think about it. And then Monday morning, walked into her office, dropped off my equipment and quit the team and told her, "Wow, I don't care what you think you're doing for me that does not give you license to disrespect me. And I will work three jobs and pay for school myself before I let you talk to me any kind of way. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm bringing that up to say, oftentimes because they make the money about, well, I bought you, going back to your point about the, the whole slavery sort of parallel, they use the money like, oh, I bought you and therefore can treat you however, understanding, right. oh, that's not what happened. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> my skill set is what you did. You made an investment in my skill set and then allowed me to be put me in a position to be on a platform so that that skill set could be widely seen so I can further my path as an athlete into the professional realm. That's what you paid for. You did not pay for my dignity as a human being. Mm-hmm. And so you therefore get to dictate how I move, period. Right. And that's the mistake that Nick Saban is making when he's trying to question why an athlete of that caliber would go to a school that he's obviously pinning as less than. Yep. Correct. You forgot that I'm not just a football player. I'm also a black man in America. Right. Mm-hmm. And so part of my value system and the choices that I make about how I move in this world are going to be contingent upon the things that are important to me and the things that are matter and that are central to who I am and how I view myself. So proximity to black excellence when it comes to the field of bat or football is going to be a part of that decision-making. And you forgot that because you thought all you was going to do was wave a check in my face and I was going to bounce. Exactly. Exactly. You forgot, you forgot that I'm a whole human being. And so that, that's the part of the conversation that when we speak about college athletes, we speak about them in the context of them being a, an asset for the institution, mm-hmm. forgetting that outside of their role as an athlete, they are whole people mm-hmm. who have greater values, who have bigger visions than what you think you're giving them for this little piece of time that they're going to be in your program. Because you won't forget about them and what they got to do, fend for themselves. So it would be wise to begin early on in the process to think about how do I center and prioritize the things that are going to make me more viable for the vision that I have for the direction of my life. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm, not, I'm doing you a favor just as much as you think you're doing me one by yeah. showing 
your institution. So let's that that's the part I think gets forgotten in the conversation about college athletes. They and, I, and it makes me think about other um, black coaches who have been successful. Like I, it makes me think about um, Georgetown when John Thompson was the coach at Georgetown and he had Allen Iverson and um, Patrick Ewing and Alonzo Mourning and how he guided them and they were successful, you know, in their way moving forward. So I, I, I agree. I totally agree with everything. That you, I've, I've been watching this for like a, all my life because it's something that fascinates me about athletes. So yes, and then, you know, going to college and seeing it up close and personal, it makes you feel, it gives you something in your chest. You feel some kind of way about it. Because something that we're also missing in this conversation is one, we can't talk about college athletes as if they're all riding high on a scholarship because they're not. And so the other part of this is as an NC2A athlete, there are clauses when you agree to play on a particular intramural team or whatever it is that don't allow you to work more than a certain number of hours or earn a certain amount of money. So if you're not one of the athletes who's on scholarship and then you are being limited by your program regarding how much you can work and earn, then who's going to make up for that? Right. If you're not, if the institution is not covering the cost of your education and your living expenses and everything else that comes with being an athlete and a student. So I think that people are also always thinking about this conversation in the context of the big names mm-hmm. that are a bunch of support from their from their respective institutions. And that's not always the case. There are a lot of other players who are not getting that kind of support, financial or otherwise, and don't have any recourse because of the restrictions that are put on them by the NC2A about how much they can make and, and how much they can work during the season or during a given school year or during the time that they have eligibility to play. But that's also a factor that we need to be considering when we talk about the well-being and the, like, sustaining your life as a student athlete when you are bringing in money to an institution they ought to be responsible for making sure that at very least your basic needs are being met and a lot of times there were players in duke i remember years ago during like final four during the time you know duke is always going deep into the nc2a tournament and there were players on the team like yeah we went in and we out here doing the things we playing on tv and everybody loves duke and i don't have nothing to eat tonight correct how is that? How are y'all being screened across the nation to millions of viewers for March Madness, and you have players who are dribbling on your court right now who don't know where they're going to eat after the game? That's wild. That is yeah. a fuckery at its finest. Yeah. And I, I always say, you know, even though slavery was abolished, they were like, okay, we'll abolish it, but we don't find a way to implement it in some type of way. And I feel like Nick... Saban, Saban, am I saying that right? Saban, Nick Saban. Saban is mad because he don't get to play master for one black person. You don't play master for hella other black niggas. Like, let it go, Nick, let it go. Cause now your dirt is finna get kicked the fuck up. And it's nobody's gonna come to save you because like you said, Joy, there's no telling how he treated those players simply because he did like, oh, you on my payroll now. Mm-hmm. So. I just feel like he should have just shut up and ate his food because now he then created a problem for himself. Moving on. (laughs) And this is the topic. This current event is it's going to segue into episode 17, which we have titled Cell Therapy, because it is a, a current event that me 
and me and Tamara tried to make a point of not talking about something ad nauseum, but there are some things that we will bring up because they feed into our major topic. And that is what this next current event is going to do for us, Tamara. Oh God. <laughs> it's, I just, I don't like to talk about things that are traumatizing to the black community as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, everyone's very well aware of what happened in Buffalo um, about this young man who drove, what, four hours? It was a 200 miles or something to this predominantly black neighborhood and killed all these older black people who were going grocery shopping, just walking to the grocery store with his AR-15, which he had the word nigger written across his AR-15 um, as he went to the store and streamed it live on the internet for people to see um, and killed all these people on a Saturday afternoon. Um, we all know what that is. The thing that I have always hated about, it was a hate crime. Let's just call it what it was. It was a hate crime. He had a, a little raggedy manifesto that he wrote that was saying why he was doing it and all these different things. That's great, fine, we have all the evidence, whatever. But what I have an issue with is that when people try to bring empathy to the monster. And when I say bring empathy to the monster is that some journalists, thought it was interesting to try to tell a tale, tell a tale, I had to say that the right way, about this young man having a toothache. And <laughs> see your face, Joy? I do the same thing, like. He basically wrote, and I, it's, it was a tweet thread, and it was probably like 13, 14 tweets about how he had a toothache and he went to the dentist and he couldn't get his tooth fixed. And that when he was writing all of these posts about killing black people, that it was somehow connected to this toothache that he had. His parents are well-to-do. He had dental insurance. Fix your tooth. But the idea was that the, the point that the writer was trying to make was he they're always trying to attach a mental health deficiency to people who are just inherently racist. And he was trying to show how he was unhinged black because the toothache was what drove his racism. And no, <laughs> no, no, no. And so of course, all the black people responding to this were like, delete this because this, first of all, this is, if this is crazy, it doesn't make any sense. And so then of course, all the other white people are like, I think you guys are missing the point. No, the fuck we're not. No. We, the point is, what is the point? I even <laughs> responded to him and I was like, you guys keep saying that we're missing the point. What the fuck was the point? What was the point? Tell me what the point was. And then I'll tell you if I missed it because who was the point for? The point was for white people to feel sympathy for this white boy who killed all these black people. Black people, we don't feel no sympathy for that nigga. So take this down, delete it. And he's just really, I mean, and then this man doubled down. No. On the point that he was trying to make, I was incensed 
<laughs> I was so angry when I read this because I was like, what the fuck does a toothache have to do with this man being a racist and it's being a hate crime and him killing 10 people? It has absolutely nothing to do with it. But you want to try to bring humanity to this monster and I'm not buying it because you're a white man. You're a white person. You want to bring humanity because there's no, there has to, he had to be mentally unhinged to, no, he doesn't. He don't like, he doesn't like black people. And that's it. I've been sitting with this and Joy, you can definitely tell me if this is toxic behavior I need to work on, but I've been sitting with, I, it's very, I'm empathetic towards people that I don't like or that I don't care for. I can be empathetic towards them, but it's very difficult for me to be empathetic towards people who repeatedly, intentionally, and deeply harm me or others. I like, I'm trying to think, is this something that I need to work on? Because when things like this happen, I don't put forth any effort to say, well, what was going on with this person that they would do this? Because my empathy goes towards the people who were unnecessarily harmed. Right. And I'm trying to, as a human being, who is fallible also. I make mistakes as well. I don't make them kind of mistakes. <laughs> but, you know, I get migraines. I haven't said to myself, I have a migraine. I'm finna go blow up my kid's school because fuck all them motherfuckers they got on my nerves today. I hate people. Like that never crosses my mind. So when these things happen, I really do sit with myself and be like, does this make me any different than this motherfucker who had wants to blame their toothache on something and has absolutely no empathy for black people because i don't have any empathy for him i don't i is that wrong so because <laughs> there's so many i have purposely stayed away from the details of this story Yes. As I tend to do and have done, to be quite honest, since 2013 in the whole Trayvon Martin situation, because I have never, in that moment, I realized when I heard the verdict of that trial, the George Newman trial, I remember very specifically asking myself if I was ready to die for this, because I understood that for us to really do something to make change, we have to be willing to put our lives on the line. Yeah. I have seen that historically throughout the generations that if we really wanna make moves and make waves around this stuff, we have to be willing to go so far as putting our lives on the line because they're willing to go so far as killing us. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I remember asking myself that very seriously and actually going to sit for hours at a park to think about if that was something I was ready to do. And because I came to the conclusion at that time that I was not yet ready to do that, I told myself then, you can't afford to keep allowing yourself to become so emotionally aroused by this shit if you're not going to be pushed to the point of being willing to die. So. I bring that up to say I have gotten myself to a point where 
I don't want to be completely detached and disconnected, but I also don't want to be overwhelmed by the details. And so what you've just shared about this story is the most that I've heard thus far. And so I am, as you speak, processing the understanding of like what is has happened here. Now, fast forward to what you just said, um, Sunita, about empathy. I, I really just pulled up the definition because I want us to be very fucking clear here. Mm -hmm. I don't anybody under this tweet talking about what was the point. I want you to be very clear about this point that I'm about to make. Empathy is defined as the psychological identification with or vicarious experiencing of the emotions, thoughts, or attitudes of another. I have no desire in any part of who I am to be able to identify with or vicariously experience anything inside of a person that would make them say, Yes, I want to get in my car, drive hours across to wherever, and decidedly murder random people because of any reason, toothache or otherwise. There is no part of my being that desires to identify with or vicariously experience what would cause me to want to do such a thing. So to answer your question about whether or not experiencing or not experiencing empathy for this person makes you toxic or wrong, my, from my point of view, the answer is absolutely the fuck not. <laughs> I, because I don't want to be the person that's absolutely the fuck not. To people, I, because I take my responsibility as a mental health advocate seriously. And I don't want to be out here being a hypocrite. But I really, my brain is like, no, that's different. Very much it is. <laughs> and so the thing about it is, if we want to take it one step further, and I do to your point, Tim, about people trying to lean on mental health as a crutch for avoiding accountability and responsibility and therefore the consequences of choices, because you made a choice. Yep. When you loaded your weapon, when you got in your car, when you drove for hours, when you copped it, when you pulled the trigger over and over and over again, you made choices mm -hmm. that led to a series of events which should have outcomes and consequences, okay? When we try to ascribe mental health or mental illness to someone's set of choices as a way of really ultimately like releasing them from the consequences of their choices, it's very dangerous because not only does it minimize the experience of those who are honestly and truly dealing with or struggling with whatever conditions they may be living through, what it also does is it gives someone else permission mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to say, well, me too. Yep. <laughs> going back for a second to the Trayvon Martin, and I don't, oof, going, I just want to go back to this because here's part of my experience. That day, I, talk about traumatizing, was I had tickets to go see Fruitvale Station. How about mm. So following hearing this verdict, I go into the movie theater and I'm standing there and it's 
people who are just getting out of the movies, people who, you know, are, have been in the mall because it was only showing at a select few theaters, right? So I had to go see it at the West Side Pavilion, which for those of you who are not from the LA area is a very white neighborhood in the West Side of Los Angeles. The mall sits in, you know, a very white neighborhood. And so many of the people who are patronizing this mall and this movie theater are white people. So I'm standing in the concessions area of this theater and people are walking around, shopping, eating their popcorn. And I'm, I'm just, I'm like, is this, is this like the twilight zone? Like, how are people just acting like it's all good? And I had to keep telling myself, Joy, they probably don't know. They've been in the mall. They've been in the movies. They probably don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. You just have to be pulling up in your car and hearing the verdict as it was happening. Right. And so I'm going through this. I go in the bathroom to collect myself. And there's two older white women. I'd say they were probably like in their seventies. One white woman turns to the other and says, did you hear the verdict? The second white woman says, yes. First white woman says, do you know what that means? The second white woman says, yes, it's open season. And I could have, could have buckled right there in that bathroom. Because what I was witnessing in that moment was two white women who were acknowledging that this man being let off for a very clear and blatant and explicit murder was permission and green light for anybody else who had any other similar idea to do the very same. Damn. And they, so, and, and the thing is, it wasn't callous and it wasn't malice. It was just flat out acknowledgement and observation of, we know what that is. Mm -hmm. We know what that is. We know that that is dog whistle for, have at it y'all. Because we're we gonna let you, we gonna let you free. There's no consequence for this. Do what you will. And yeah. he that literally rented like it was like somebody just took my soul and wrung it out to see that. Because we're talking about 70-something white women. So we know the world that they grew up in and lived in and seen and experienced. White women. Yeah. To say that. That means you know you weaponize your whiteness. That means you are acknowledging that and you know that you're getting away with it. And you know that there are systems that perpetuate and allow that. And you are saying that in the comforts of what you feel like the safety is your own neighborhood, your own, that's what you're doing. These are the conversations that happen. And then you get on Twitter in public spaces and try to make excuses, like, and try to pretend like you don't see it, like you don't know, like it doesn't exist and it's bullshit. And then you try to make you gaslight me into feeling I'm a horrible human being for not being able to empathize with that bullshit. Right. So now I'm out here questioning myself, should I be kinder? Should I have more compassion? Should I tap in? But he's a human being and we all have struggles. And so now I'm feeling like, well, am I wrong for not being able to connect with and feel sorry for a murderous animal who intentionally took the lives of people who he ain't even know nothing about? Right. The crazy one because I can't quite understand how a toothache a toothache leads to murder, and I'm now I'm sitting on my podcast questioning if I'm tripping. <laughs> <laughs> that is living in America. Is that that's the gaslighting? That's that's the shit of living here. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. So it's, it's absolutely crazy, and I we saved it specifically as the last topic before we got into therapy because 
these are the things that lead a lot of Black people to therapy is, am I crazy? Like yes. everything that's going on, the things that we have, have suffered through, whether that's within our family, within society, just period, as Black people, therapy is, it's supposed to be safety for us, but actually getting to that, it's like, what are all the things that push us there? So that's that's what episode 17, cell therapy is about for us because we this there's a stigma with therapy within the Black community, but we all need it. It isn't something that we need to take advantage of once we break. Mm-hmm. It's something that it should be part of our health regimen, no different than if you're a diabetic, stop eating things that's going to cause your blood sugars to escalate. So if you have anxiety, make sure that you're seeing a psychologist or a therapist or a counselor to help you give you tools to help manage that mm-hmm. or figure out where it started and what you can do to help with your healing process. Our personal experiences with therapy, um, you know, within the Black community, church counseling versus licensed medical health professionals, you know, who, who are we finna listen to? So how do we seek out therapists that are best for us? Because what this guy did, killing those, intentionally killing those Black people, that trauma, and you definitely correct me, Joy, if I misstate something, that trauma is different than suffering trauma within your family that is systemic amongst Black people. But there is no trauma Olympics. It all affects us. So this is why the conversation about therapy is so important and why we thought it was important to have you on here because you speak about these things from an emotional intelligence aspect. And a lot of people take their emotional intelligence for granted, even though it's there. We all have it. Can we all improve it? Of course. And we see it. Look at everything around us. It's a clear indicator that we can improve. So perfect segue in. Let's get into the cell therapy. And yeah. if you haven't noticed, Joy, we picked we picked titles of songs for our episodes. So this is the Goody Mob song. What'd you say? Yeah, come on, Goody Mob. I see what you're doing. Yes. <laughs> But Goody, that song is appropriate to what we're talking about, too, because they're talking about things that go on amongst the Black community that we know these things happen, but sometimes we normalize it. And these are some of the things we shouldn't be normalizing because that's why we need therapy in the first place. So, 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 a couple things. (laughs) (laughs) Just foundationally speaking, because I think when language becomes commonplace, it's easy to assume that we're all speaking from the same definition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for me to clarify, Sunita, you you work with me before, you know that I'm always like, let me start by clarifying my definition of what I'm talking about right now. So that yes. when you hear me, you hear me through the lens of what I'm talking about, not what you thought I was talking about, which may right. not be, right? Yes. So it's important for me to talk, even though I wear the hat of therapist and that means something to people, whatever their experience of that has, has been or not been, um, I do not approach the topic of therapy 
from the perspective of what's wrong. Mm -hmm. I approach therapy from the perspective of what happened. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it externalizes the issue because we all live inside of families, inside of societies, inside of cultures, inside of nations that impact. And in my mind, when we talk about a mental illness, it is not an internal deficit that someone has individually. Mm -hmm. For me, it is something has disrupted your capacity to be well. Mm -hmm. Experience you had, an environment you grew up in, something has disrupted your capacity to be well. So for me, the process of therapy wants to answer the question is what happened can we understand what the, the event was or the experience was or their perception or interpretation of that? Can we then understand how it created inside of you a belief, a story, a rule by which you begin to live, which then continues to create certain outcomes, experiences, causes you to, to be attracted to a certain thing, whatever that is, right? And so now we're looking at something has happened, right? And it's, it's, it has been a disruption to your capacity to be mentally well. And that the process of therapy is getting to the question of what happened? How did it impact you? What are the changes we need to make to these rules and understandings that would help you live a life that is healthier for you as defined by you? I tell my clients, you are the expert, I am the professional. I come with the skills, tools, and information, but you know you better than I ever could. No matter how many questions I ask, no matter how many sessions we have, you know you better than I ever could. I am here as a guide and a support to help you get to what you say is your level of optimal functioning in the world. I don't get to define that for you. And that is important because I think that the bigger conversation, bigger the conversation about therapy gets, the more it starts to look like people think therapy fixes a person. Yes. Mm -hmm. And to think of something as fixing a person would imply that the person is broken. Mm -hmm. I think that's why it's important to, to determine what, and this is something that I, I was talking to Tamara about, how to seek out the best therapist for you, because Every psychologist, psychiatrist, therapist, counselor is not, it's not a one size fits all thing. Like what I need, mm -hmm. I can't see the, whoever Tamara sees and think that it's automatically going to be a good fit. Mm -hmm. So everything that you're saying, I 100% agree with, but I also, there's no, but we'll stop. I 100% agree with it. Mm -hmm. I think we, especially as black people, need to be taught how to seek out. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. I agree that we, we have not traditionally understood systems to be beneficial for us. And let us be clear, therapy is a subset of a system, a medical healthcare system, which is not immune to or at all, you know, um, separate from the racism that we have seen, <laughs> right? Throughout history that has been perpetuated. As a matter of fact, there are tons of theories early on 
in the development of the field of psychology, which were very much developed uh, for to perpetuate ideas that Black people were inferior, right? That our brains operate a particular way and that all of these things. And so the field of psychology and the, the work of therapists is not, uh, we're not exempt from being influenced by harmful behaviors and ideologies that disproportionately impact Black people, to be clear, right? And I say that from inside of this system, it's a large part of the reason why I have decided not to go move towards licensure because licensure is gatekeeping. Oh. Yes. Okay, see, I'm so glad that you said that because I don't talk about, Sunita knows this about me, but I um, actually got my master's in counseling um, mm -hmm. and I went to a KCREP certified program so that I could do all of my hours. And then it mm -hmm. was like, you get licensed, but I never got licensed. I just, mm -hmm. I just, I never did it because I knew that I was leaving where I was and moving to a different state. And I knew that you had to do it state to state. But when I came to Georgia, I just did something completely different. Mm -hmm. But I always thought that about licensing, but I never had the words to express it the way that you just did. That's gatekeeping. It's, I'm going to tell you what you get to do with the knowledge that I gave you. <laughs> This is, you can only work with certain people in this area. You got to do it like this. And if you don't do it like this, we're going to take your license and we're going to threaten your livelihood. And if you find out this is, is, and the thing is what, what the missing link here, and I think this is where the disconnect needs to be made before there can be any changes, is that what you taught me to do and how you taught me to do it was never designed for and or inclusive of the people I intend to serve. Mm -hmm. So if you force me to do this work according to the way you told me to do it, that means that you are literally training me to go into certain communities and do more harm. Yes. yes. That if I do it any way outside of that and I am found out that my livelihood is on the line. So now what you're causing me to do is live inside of a world where I'm constantly looking over my shoulder, hoping that no one finds out I'm doing the good work of the Lord. <laughs> in ways that feel culturally relevant, appropriate and humble, right? Right. So yes. for me, it has been very, it's been very, I, I remember speaking to a mentor of mine. She was asking me like, okay, so you're graduating. This is when I was finishing the master's portion of my work. And she was like, you know, what are you going to do? And um, blah, blah, blah. And so when I was telling her, she was like looking confused the whole time. And I said, well, why are you looking at me like that? And she said, well, what you're doing doesn't require you to have a license. And I said, okay, so say more about that. Because <laughs> this is right. I'm not clear yet at this point right about like this process and what it's doing. It's not until I get into it and I'm doing my hours and I'm understanding the system and I'm that I'm like, oh no, this is not, I don't like it. So, so when she says that to me, I'm like, hmm, say more. So she tells me, you know, basically, you know, this is what the license is for and this is how you can use it and this and this and this way, but what you intended to doesn't require any of that and blah, blah, blah. Here's the part. And she said, but more importantly, I feel like if you do get licensed, it's gonna make it so that you can't do a lot of what you say you want to do. Mm -hmm. Because then this becomes a body by which you are governed 
and they get to create the rules for how you operate inside of this system. And if you do anything outside of that, you're, you're operating outside of their, their sort of bylaws, if you will. And therefore, it could be grounds for expulsion or, or suspension of your license, right? So I'm like, okay, so this doesn't make sense. Long story short, I decided ultimately to drop off of that path and, and create my own. And, and I've been doing fantastically well doing that. Um, I still get to work with my, my clients. I do it under the guise of coaching because I can't legally call it therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, gatekeeping, right? Um, even though I've done all the coursework, I got all the information because I didn't, I wasn't willing to work for free or a little of nothing for 3000 hours to get your licensure to take your test, to buy your study materials, even though I already paid however many tens of thousands of dollars for the education, I got to pay a couple more hundred dollars to pay your study materials and to register to take your test. And then I got to pay every time if I don't pass it the first time and I got to keep doing all this. Like, what is, is it hazing? Is it that, it's just call it yeah, right. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> don't, don't make it like it's some prestigious thing that I'm doing, call it hazing. And what it really is, is like, like we hear about the process of hazing for some of our you know, Greek institutions, it's the same process. It's like, we need you to prove that you're with us so that when you get up in here, you're not gonna try to disrupt what it is we're doing. Not necessarily to suggest that the Greek organizations are doing bad things or that the therapy, the therapy world is, you know, the are doing bad things. I don't mean to suggest that. What I'm saying is I was very clear about what it is I wanted to do in the world. And I was very clear about how licensure would not, would be a barrier to that, right? I, I was very clear about how the licensure process not even just getting licensed, but the process of getting licensed. Like I said, you have to do 3000 hours. And unless you're doing that full time, which in the beginning, you're likely not being paid for those hours. Mm-hmm. So you can't do them full time because many of us have to work too, which means it's going to take you a long time to do those hours, which means it's going to, I know people that it took six or seven years for them to finish their hours. No. The, the, pro, the program that I was in, because it was KCREP certified, it didn't have to be 3000, but it had to be 800 while I was in school. That's what I'm saying. That's a, it's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous amount of hours. And, and I don't mean to suggest that we don't need to practice. Let me be clear. That we should just take a class and then be entrusted with somebody's most intimate stories about their experiences. And that, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't due diligence that needs to be done. I'm Mm -hmm. saying that the process by which we are expected to do that and the timeline and the everything else is not sustainable for somebody who has to work their way through school that is very much designed for somebody who already has the privileges of walking through the world without any barriers without any struggles without that's not designed for somebody who has to also work and be doing this if I'm doing a master's full-time as an adult That's designed for somebody who can sit with whomever, somebody can pay for their education, they don't gotta work. Somebody who doesn't have to work for a living and can do those hours and not get paid or get, that's not designed for people like us. And then the, the theories and the things that we're taught are not necessarily inclusive of. So when they say evidence-based practices where these things have been researched and studied on people over the years, very likely we weren't involved in those in those not research at all not at all right but i think that is what leads to the stigma with the therapy in the black community because we are getting mental health professionals who are licensed so that's supposed to mean something 
And it does to some degree, yes. It, right. It's so these are, it's no different than I'm going to a doctor. I know their license. So I'm going to trust that what they're telling me is the truth. But when you're telling me things that aren't applicable to Black people, it it disrupts my trust there. And I'm, I'm saying me, but I'm talking about us as a people and why it's so hard for some of us to get over that hump of, I have to trust this person with my information. Also, if a lot of your trauma, I've seen this with men, Black men, a lot of their trauma comes from Black women, whether that's their mother mm -hmm. or women that they've dated, situations that they've been in, they're not free to talk about these things because men control society. So we get a lot more negativity from men in power then, and they cause the men who aren't empowered to have to clam up and not share these things. And nobody's suggesting it's just like, get a therapist, right? But if their harm is coming particularly from women, why would you suggest this man go talk to a woman? He's probably going to clam up and he's not going to want to open up and say anything. But nobody's making these suggestions. Let me clarify that because that's a broad statement. They're not getting the suggestions that they need. So it's kind of like if I have problems with my shoulder, I call a doctor, they can say, I'm not the doctor that you need to talk to. You need to talk to a doctor that specializes in people whose rotator cuffs are fucked up. I'm going to send you to this physical therapist that works with people who have sports injuries. Mm. I will probably get my shoulder taken care of. In the mental health world, that isn't happening. And I'm only speaking from my experience because I've had to go through so many doctors, so many therapists, so many psychiatrists. I've been gaslit by them. And I still maintain that we need therapy. I just haven't found the right one. So with this, this gatekeeping that happens, it's like, what are the words that we as Black people need to use to get the therapist that we need? Because I started saying, I need to see a therapist who sees other therapists. And they're like, but you're not a therapist. And I said, I can outthink you though. Mm -hmm. And if I can outthink you, you can't see me because I'm going to make you think that I'm okay. I know I'm not. And it's like, I'm not doing it on purpose, Joy. It's like, I want somebody to see through that. You know what I'm saying? Because it's it's a defense mechanism. Like, I don't know this person. I don't trust them. Right. <laughs> this is what you're saying. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You had mentioned something about, you know, the work of therapy and what may be happening in a session, for instance, not being applicable to Black people. And I want to kind of like push back on that. I don't know that it, if it's not necessarily that it's not applicable as much as it is, is that it's not considerate of Black people. Yes. What I mean by that is there are certain behavioral processes that are pretty much universal in terms of, you know, us being wired for survival and how we, to your point, develop defense mechanisms around that, right? Uh, I think that that's pretty universal in terms of the process. Now, how it happens, what it looks like, different. I mean, the process, I think, is pretty universal no matter what, you know, breed or nationality or race or whatever you are. I think what happens is it's missed in the context of therapy with Black people specifically because we don't always consider 
what I mean by that is what is ascribed to be a threat in general mm-hmm. may not be the same thing that is a threat to us. So when this is why when we pick up on things, we're like, that was racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm not being sensitive. I'm not pulling the race card. Like I know what that was. We pick up on that and that can trigger our defense mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Ways that other people might not be triggered. So that if I don't know that, if I don't understand that, then I'm going to miss in session if I'm talking to you. When I'm in session with the client, I see when they shut down. Mm. I see when I've said something that they're like, mm, I'm not fucking with her. <laughs> and see, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> but that's because I know us. Right. Yeah. So it's not that what I'm saying doesn't apply. It's that maybe how I said it, when I said it, how I responded, whatever it was, it wasn't considerate of the wholeness and the fullness of who you are. Mm-hmm. I don't even, it doesn't even register to me that something I've said or done in session might be triggering or upsetting for you because I don't, that's not in the realm of my understanding of how the world works. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm so disconnected from that even being a thing, which is why I could then write a, that thing that's like, well, you know, you know, when you're two thirds, sometimes you just murder people. You know how that go. <laughs> you can't even like you can't you your mind has to literally do gymnastics to yep. fuse something when you can't or refuse to accept no this is racism mm-hmm. and if you don't want to call a thing a thing because of what it means about you directly or indirectly then you're going to make up all kinds of stuff. And I don't care how much work we do as therapists, even as therapists who see therapists, mm-hmm. I don't how much work we do. The thing is, as therapists, and then you probably know this, Tim, they try to teach us to be tabula rasa, right? A clean, a clean slate that you don't bring yourself into the room. Bullshit. <laughs> it's bullshit. I'm a person. Before I am anything to anyone else, I am a human being. And so if you say something in therapy, it's not that I'm not to be triggered. It's not that I'm not to be, not to have counter-transference. It is that I am to recognize it and not allow it to cloud the work that I do with you. And that if I can't stop that process, then I am responsible for then referring out. The reason why I'm bringing all all of this up is that when we're talking about black people being able to go and find a therapist, the onus then becomes our, it's on us to be able to know ourselves well enough, similar to what you said, Sunita, which is, I know I'm gonna outthink you. This is not gonna work because I know how to do the whatever I need to do to convince you of something. And I need you to call me out on my bullshit and you can't cause you're not gonna see it. Mm-hmm. We need to know ourselves enough to be able to ask the right questions when we are interviewing, so when we do an intake session, we're wanting to understand what's bringing you to therapy, help me understand what are your signs and symptoms, what are your presenting problems, what are the things that are causing you conflict or discomfort or whatever those things are, and we're trying to understand you, that is also your opportunity to understand us. Yes, 
you are checking in. First and foremost, I tell my clients all the time, even my friends, if you're looking for a therapist, trust yourself. Just mm. like you walk into a room and you'd be like, mm, this ain't it. This, this don't feel right. Do not allow the story of this person being a therapist and the stature of that and the elite, oh, because you got a degree and a license. So I think that you automatically know because the system says, because we will allow that to override what I feel is like, but when the way you talk to me, it just ain't, that ain't it. I don't like, trust that because this person is going to ask you to open yourself up and spill your guts to them. They're gonna ask you to tell them things that you have never told anyone else and in ways that you couldn't imagine you would ever talk about these things. And the truth is, if they have to ask you, they're probably not the right therapist. And that is important. Intuitive. <laughs> with somebody, you're gonna intuitively tell them the things because you the whole point of seeking therapy is that you're ready to put the load down mm-hmm. yes if you go in somewhere and you find that you're carrying in in and out the same load to every session because you haven't yet felt safe to put it down that's probably not the therapist for you and that actually gets exhausting too because i my level of trauma that i've dealt with it's it started in childhood but it's gone throughout my entire adult life and i've shared some very intimate details with tamra they're jarring mm-hmm. so if they are jarring to the person who has to hear them imagine what it's like me having to relive it literally and it's it's physically you know we read the, i was telling you i read the book um the body keeps score am i saying it right yeah, the body keeps the score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there was a part in there that I really appreciated the doctor acknowledging is that there are some PTSD clients that every single time they have to bring up the trauma that they experienced, it was such a violent mm-hmm. memory that they, their body literally is feeling all the pain again. And that is one of the things that's been made my journey very hard because I had a very violent childhood. And so not only did I walk out of my sessions feeling like I'm beat the fuck up like I was when I was a little kid. And I'm just like, I want to do this every, I don't want to do this every week. So imagine getting one and you're four sessions in and you realize this ain't the one. I got to do that shit all over again with another therapist. And it becomes a process that makes me feel very unsafe. So it's like, I am, I will always be an advocate for therapy, but these are the things that I'm looking for to help myself and other people I know who are experiencing the exact same thing where they're just like, I just, I'm not going to a therapist, even though I know I need to, because I have been through this for years and I still haven't found it. And I think that's why it's important when you were mentioning the intake process, mm-hmm. having that help to figure out how do I find out more sooner than later, because it is very exhausting. Your personal experiences with therapy, knowing you need it, but being like, all right, let me get ready to get beat the fuck up again, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And first first of all, I just want to acknowledge you for, for just 
the persistence, right? The, the commitment to your own healing that you would continue to put yourself in what could potentially be harm's way every time you have to start over with somebody and relive those experiences in the way that, that you do. Uh, just that in and of itself is such a, it's such an admirable quality that you would be so committed to your own healing and betterment that you would say, you know what, this is incredibly hard and I feel beat the fuck up every time but I am worth the effort of finding someone who's going to help me through this because the what's coming gets to be better than what has been. Mm-hmm. And I'm, Wait. <laughs> I'm committed to finding the tools that I need to, to create that life, right? And, and to not just kind of sit waiting for it, but to know that I am empowered to create that and that I get to dismantle whatever the barriers are inside of me that has been built up around that, right? And so I want to acknowledge that, that's important. Um, And to that end, I want to say to you that as you are on your journey and to really anybody who's listening who may have a similar story around, you know, looking for a therapist and just not quite finding the right fit. um, And this is another barrier I want to talk about because I know that there's like the financial piece and sometimes your insurance only covers a certain number of sessions. And so you got to dive right in every time. There's all, and this this is again why I was like, "Mm, I'm not doing it because y'all are not getting ready to tell me I got to sit in front of somebody for one hour and then have a whole diagnosis. That's, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sit with somebody for an hour and then at the end of this, try to tell you, oh, they have this particular diagnosis that justifies the fact that they need support from a professional. Like, I'm not doing that and you're not going to force me to do it and you can suck it. But um, what I want to say to you, Sunita, about that is if you have the luxury and the privilege, according to however you're paying for your care or however you're getting your care, if you have the privilege to say to your therapist, I'm going to give you, you know, whatever the general intake, you need my name, my age, whatever presenting issues, okay, fine. But these first few sessions, I'm not getting ready to dive deep into my story and relive all of these traumatic, violent experiences until I'm safe doing that with you. And so I would like for our first few sessions for me to be getting to know you. Not necessarily personally, like I'm asking you about your life. No, because that is not necessarily appropriate for therapists to share. Although I self-disclose when I feel like therapeutically, it can be supportive of the process, right? not going to sit in here pretend like I don't live a life and I'm like no I'm just here listening to you nothing happens over here I'm good no there are things that I have lived through experienced witnessed observed that may be helpful for you Mm -hmm. so I'm going to self-disclose when it feels appropriate if I think that it can be therapeutically useful for you but it is not appropriate for a client to come into a session and be like girl what you do this weekend I'm gonna be like girl I went to no that's not happening we are not (laughs) like you're not friends. You are not the homie. We are here. I'm here to support you on a specific journey. Right. And so, but I do think it's appropriate for you to say as a client going in, like what I need support with is very difficult for me to share. And I have been shopping for therapists for a long time and I've not yet found one. And I've noticed that every time I try to tell this, I have to relive it. And it's been damaging more than it has been helpful. Because I'm going to tell you what, a therapist who listens to you say that, they're already getting information that is going to be helpful for them when they work with you. Okay. Without having to relive any of the trauma, without you having to re-experience any of the violence, when you come in and say that, they're going to be cued upon about your level of self-awareness. They're going to be cued upon your experience in therapy. 
they're going to be cued about the fact that even though they don't know details, there are some violent trauma in your history, even if they don't yet know the nature of that. All of that is going to come out just by you saying, I would like for us to spend a few sessions developing a relationship where I feel safe with you. Mm -hmm. Period. And then in your sessions, you can ask them, so how do you tend to work? Mm -hmm. When I do, I'm going to tell you all my experience. When I'm taking on a new client, they call me and they're they're ready to say, this is what I'm going through. This is what I need help. They, they're ready to spill it, which is what mm -hmm. I'm saying. People come into therapy, they're ready for support. So if you got to pry it out and force it out, unless we're talking about court main daily therapy where people are going in because they got to, because the judge told them to, if we're talking about somebody voluntarily coming in for therapy, they are ready to spill the beans usually, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So people come in and they tell me all the things. And then I say to them, okay, let me tell you how I work and how it might look if I were to work with you. Mm -hmm. Based on what you shared with me, I do this, 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 right? And I tell them, I like to understand your past as it relates to your present so we can plan for your future. So I'm not in here just digging up details about everything you do all the time back when you were in third grade, unless something that happened in third grade is relevant to what's happening with you right now. I don't want to just yes. know all the details. We'll be working together to the end of my life if we do that. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Let's talk about the stuff that feels relevant that comes up for you now. So I want to understand your past as it relates to your present so we can plan for your future. And I tell them about that process and what it looks like. And then I say to them, based on what you've shared with me today, that would look like helping me understand this, this and this, because I hear you saying it's showing up in this, this and this way. And then we're thinking about you want to create this, this and this. So I would help you develop tools, resources, inside information so that we can move in this direction. And here's how that would look. I do my sessions every week da, 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 and I lay it out very clearly so they can understand what they can expect. Because I want you to know, does this feel right? Mm -hmm. This person, I am not so stuck on myself that I would think I'm the therapist for everybody. I don't want to be. <laughs> right? But this is this is one of the things when I was in the co the mental health cohort with you, I used to talk to Tamara about how you facilitated things mm -hmm. because it was from a. I never got the feeling that you were above us in that I'm telling y'all how to handle this and you must do it this way. There were, I recall a couple of times where you had asked some questions and I answered based on my experience and you didn't make me feel like I was answering wrong. You were like, we must honor your perspective because that's, that's your lived experience. And I feel like maybe that's the element that's missing with the licensed therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists and all of these ment professional mental health uh, professional mental health practitioners practitioners yes is they have to work within these confines where right. it it very black and white and they can't say I'm going to deal with you based on your experience I'm going to take the knowledge that I have and work with you on that it is very much textbook and life is not bland like that I I I was listening to I can't remember what it was but it was a psychologist and they were just like you know 
mental health gets a bad rap when it's an illness, but these are some of the most intelligent people because they go out into the world living two separate lives, literally every day. I have to battle this, but I have to present normal. So let me get it the fuck together. And so it's like- <laughs> I'm looking at Joy's face and she's like- <laughs> it's People I acknowledging that in your field, it, I don't know, it humanizes it for me, you know? And I know it humanizes it for other people because we don't, I know a lot of people don't, they own it, the, the broken word. I'm broken and I'm fixing myself. And it's just like, no, I just got a, another set of tools I have to learn how to work with in order to manage my life. And I, it, this is important for me. At one time, it was not that important, um, but it's become important because I have a child and I have to teach her these things too, how to manage her mental health, her wellness and so all of your, how you do things, I think it has served you well in your journey because it helps you to help way more people than if you were in the confines of what you were licensed to do. So I appreciate you, I do. Thank you for saying that. Um, I wanna just speak to normal for a second. I know you guys hate that word. <laughs> It's not that I hate it. I just feel like it's incredibly dismissive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Uh, because someone thinks or operates outside of what is typical or what is widely accepted, that they are therefore abnormal or crazy, or then again, like I said, something is wrong with them, right? Mm -hmm. like, there is there is one of the large contributors to the early early days of the field of psychology, humanistic and experiential, and existential psychology. Excuse me, um, Victor Franco has a quote that I always reference, right? And it is something to the effect of like abnormal behavior in an abnormal circumstance is normal, right? And as yeah. people, as black people in America. Our daily existence is fraught with abnormal experiences. The way they look at us, talk to us, treat us, just the way we are viewed and conceptualized, like from everything from our names to our language, like literally we are nitpicked under a microscope and judged and usually um, not in a good way, right? Rarely. Rarely is the consensus of that judgment or assessment positive, right? And we are called to then exist inside of that. And we better not ever pretend that it hurts our feelings or makes us angry or, you know, any of those things, right? And so this is what I hear you saying when it's like, I'm having this experience internally, but externally and outwardly, I have to present in this particular way to be considered normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like, the truth is a normal person would be allowed to have a range of emotions. Yes. What you're telling me is I'm only allowed to be pleasant all the time. Yep. I can't be angry. I can't be sad. I can't be frustrated. I can't be overwhelmed. I can't be exhausted. I can't be 
for those things. And you think that's not going to drive me up a wall at some point? Yes. Like, so this is what I'm saying about this idea of normal because normal is a spectrum. Right. Abnormal is you expecting me to show up as one thing all of the time in every scenario, no matter what. That's what's abnormal. But if I don't, if I internalize that as something is wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening in the Black community is that is something that is put on all of us. We're expected, even we put it on each other, mm-hmm. is you have to show up this way to make other people comfortable, me yeah. included. And when you make me uncomfortable, you're bad and you're doing something wrong. And it's, I'm not talking about things that are harmful, but you just showing up as a normal human. I'm affected. And I, I'll give you an example with, I have was had an issue with someone because they were consistently doing things that they knew did not bode well with me. And this is like, this isn't a, oh, someone did something and I have to inform them that they're crossing a boundary. They knew this was a boundary that shouldn't have been crossed. But the expectation was that I should just be understanding and I shouldn't be upset and I shouldn't make them feel bad because they made the same mistake three times. But this is a black person and this is, learn- of course, this is learned behavior, right? From the society around us is that we expect each other to show up in ways that are more accommodating to us than just being a normal human. Because in that instance, me being frustrated, me being angry, me being disappointed, like you said, Joy, that is normal. But I was put in a position where it was, if I show up like that, they're gonna act like I'm attacking them. Yeah. Um. This is why therapy is important and have be able to have the space to have these conversations because I have actually had therapists be like, so how do you think, you, you think you could have handled that a little differently, not gotten so upset? And that's weird to me because now you're telling me that I need to change my feelings towards something. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you told me this, you done told hella other people this. But do you tell white people this? But this is why I don't subscribe to the fixing model of what's wrong. Right. Because from yeah. a perspective of what of fixing someone instead of understanding someone, then your attempt is always going to be to change them rather mm-hmm. than to, to nurture them where they are until they can grow into an understanding of what may be a more helpful way. I'm not saying that you don't eventually say, is there an opportunity to respond differently? I'm saying that first step to being to somebody being receptive to that suggestion is to first validate where they are. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that and you immediately make them wrong for how they feel, which to be clear is never wrong. You cannot feel wrongly, right? <laughs> like, so if your first step as a therapist is to always fix, which I want to also say, um, let me stick a pin in the, the fixing idea and where that comes from and, and, and how that happens. 
because I don't want to vilify. I don't want to like make. I don't want this to become like a bashing session, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I have some really dope, dope friends who are fantastically amazing therapists and who went the traditional route of licensure and are doing the damn thing and serving people in a black community in a way that is helpful, not harmful. Like, I don't want to make it like it's either or, right? Like you either got licensed and are doing fuck shit or you didn't and are mm-hmm. it's not that, right? I'm just on my path and the way that I chose to go about it because of what felt real and true to my personal values and how I want to show up in the world and the work that I want to do. I want to clarify that because I don't want to make this a war against you know therapy in the world of that it's not it is a very helpful place um and I I have gotten a lot from my education which is why I did go on and get the doctorate I didn't just stop at the master's I saw the value of continuing my education and 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 deepening my understanding of this work I want to clarify that um Mm -hmm. and so when when you say here's how I felt here's what happened and to hear your therapist come, just come right back at you and say well could you have done it differently implies that what you did do was wrong mm-hmm. yeah right? as opposed to saying help me understand why that was your response what did it mean to you when they said or did the thing you know like because now I'm I'm wanting to get into well clear I'm, I'm of the mindset that people are always doing the best they can with what they have and what they know Mm-hmm. Right. And so in that moment, whatever was going on with you, that that felt like your best or only response to that. So help me understand what was going on with you. What's your context for why that felt like your best or only response? And I'm not going to ask it in that way, but that's what I'm wanting to understand. Because yeah. then we see, oh, OK, well, she didn't even realize that this other thing could have been possible or this other thing or that other option. So how can we begin to gently expand her boundaries or expand her scope of understanding about a situation such that in the future, she may be able to see other options for how to respond to this. Not because what she's doing right now is wrong, but it may not be the most helpful for what it is she's saying she wants to accomplish moving forward. But that's me thinking about what you have decided is what you came here to do with me, not me not me projecting what I think is the right way for you to handle a situation. That's the difference. Yeah. And I think too, and this is, I think Tam has a lot to chime in about this. The church counseling versus therapy from mental health professionals. I think the reason the church counseling does a lot of damage is because morality is brought into It's a sign to our feelings. You can't feel this way. You can't feel that way because it's good or bad when the mental health professionals do let you know how you feel isn't bad. What you do with those feelings may be sectioned off like that. But the church counseling immediately attacks your feelings. If you're feeling a little lusty, but you marry, you're going to hell. And it's like, it's just a feeling. I didn't fuck nobody. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, church counseling does that. The same thing with, I don't know if you knew Joy, but I grew up a Jehovah's Witness and shame is thick in that organization. So normal normal biological things about your body. You're going through puberty. You didn't have any attraction to anyone before. All of a sudden, 
for some people they become boy crazy girl crazy both crazy Mm -hmm. and having your religious leaders tell you that you have committed a sin against god for a biological feeling you have you don't have no control over this it just happens right Mm -hmm. and i feel like this is one of the things why tim mentioned like we need to dig into this because we can't just rely on our religious leaders as black people to like we can't pray this shit away and i want i want to say that there are some people in the church who uh are licensed counselors but it also is done under the guise of it's a part of their theology degree so it's still very much Christian based or religious based as far as their therapy styles it you know it infuses that into it and you know a lot of time I don't you know I don't have any issue with people like if you want to go talk to your pastor that's fine but there are certain things that your pap you can't talk to your pastor about and I think that they that churches don't make that distinction So I feel like people need to know when they need to make that distinction. Because if you want to go in there as a wife and you like, I want to leave my husband because this is just not working for me. Any conversation you have with your pastor is probably going to be about you staying in that relationship when that may not mentally or physically be healthy for you. But their ideation is that you maintain the marriage because you got a, you said these vows before God and that takes precedence over your well-being and that's where I, where my biggest issue is with the church counselor. Mm -hmm. Oh me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Um, So many things. Uh, let me lead by saying my the the few the first year and a half or so maybe even closer to two years that I did as I was moving towards relationship before I decided to jump off that track was at a counseling center that was associated with a church. It was not church counseling. In that, the director and every other clinician working in there were licensed professionals. It was a counseling center that was affiliated with a church that if you wanted Christian-based counseling, meaning scripture was involved, prayer was appropriate, all those things, it was available, but we were still very much licensed professionals or or moving towards licensure, coming from the perspective of clinical, you know, social science-based research, not like the Bible says. And and then into your point, projecting or imposing our moral thoughts on right or wrong, right? Because again, this is why I always lead with, you are the expert, I am the professional, I'm coming with skills and tools. This is not me giving you advice. This is not me telling you my opinion. I'm offering you skills and tools based on what you say you wanna create for yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And this is why it's so important to keep that at the center of our work because we are people and we do have ideas and people have come into sessions saying and doing things and I'm like, a word (laughs) but (laughs) it's not my job to be like oh you out of pocket (laughs) like it's not my job it's not my job to do that and so this is my work that I get to do my work is feeling what I feel owning and 
acknowledging that and owning that as what I feel. Mm-hmm. You have to feel, right? So mm-hmm. to your point, and I, so I wanted to bring that up because I feel like it's fair. I want to have full disclosure that I have a background in working in a counseling center that is associated with a church. Not It was associated with a particular church, not necessarily stemming from a particular religion. That, okay. that's, mm-hmm. Yeah. My point in bringing that up is to say when counseling is stemming from a particular religion or perspective, then that is when it becomes informed by my job as the fill in the blank counselor, Christian, whatever other religious denomination, my job is to get you back in line because that is what religion is. It is rules. This is why we say, oh, I do that religiously. It is repetitive and restrictive oftentimes set of rules. This is why when you think about the Ten Commandments, for instance, it starts with all the things thou shalt not do because it is restrictive. This is how you have to live inside of this narrow confines of what we say is right and wrong and good and bad. And so if I'm coming from that lens when I'm counseling you, then my job, no matter what you come in here and say, is to always pull you back into that line. You are straying from this narrow path and it's my job to pull you back. Now, from that standpoint, they are not wrong. If it is my job to pull you back into line because you're stepping out according to how we define those lines, then that's what I'm here to do. Mm -hmm. So to your point then about somebody thinking about the kind of support they need, if I am coming in to understand and get support with navigating these thoughts, feelings, behaviors, urges, et cetera, then it's probably not an idea, a good idea for me to go in with somebody who's only going to pull me back into their idea of what I should be doing. Right. Yes. So it doesn't mean that religious counseling doesn't have its place because there will be people who will say, I desire to live in alignment with this particular ideology. The things that I am doing in my life, the thoughts that I'm having, the behaviors and the urges and et cetera, are pulling me outside of that. And I need somebody who's going to bring me back. That is appropriate for that's if that's what you're looking for. If that's not what you're looking for, then probably a religious counselor isn't a good fit for you if you're looking for somebody who's going to create space for you to explore those thoughts and feelings, who is going to create space and validate, who's going to give you the opportunity to understand and course correct in a way that you define, not that it's outside defined by an institution that, you know, is kind of preset, if you will, right? Yes. So, I don't, I want to be careful not to be like, they wrong, right? And it's just the same. Yeah, like, right, 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 right. Has its place, but its place is very much for the come from of, again, this is our idea of how things should go. So anything you present inside of this process that is outside of that, it is our job to pull you back into alignment with what we're saying is the right, good, best, moral way to do it. That's what you're going to get when you go into a religious counseling setting. Whatever their rules are for what is right and good, everything that you say that is not in alignment with that is going to be disputed. And there's going to be likely some level of shame and fear used to bring that into line. Yes. The unfortunate part of how in religious institutions have evolved, right? In, right. in the way that 
utilize them in the position that they hold in our modern contemporary world, right? If they just become a rule book that by which we live as opposed to a relationship that we strive to grow in, right? Yeah. I think that's why it was important that we had you on this episode too, because my language is going to be very different than yours because <laughs> I, I ain't go to school for none of this shit. You know me, I, I'm rough around it. I'm going to just say it flat out. But I do, I am, if there are options available to us, that's always my main thing is what are the options available to us? Because like you said, for somebody who is deeply in the church, that that may be sufficient for them. Mm -hmm. But if they're not getting the support, just like you said, that they need, they need to know that the option exists outside of this. Mm-hmm. that can help them because at the end of the day, whether you're a religious person or not, your mental health wellness is a priority. Sure. Mm-hmm. If you're involved in something that is de- making your mental health deteriorate, you really do have to assess, is this what's best for me? Yeah. So I, how you frame things, I think is important because you're, you're framing them as a professional, but you're also framing them as a human being that experiences the spectrum of emotion just like anybody else. And that's what I want for my people, for mm-hmm. us as Black people, is to understand there are people out there we can talk to. It, yeah. Yes, we don't have to comb through a bunch of shit that maybe not be for us, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It's sure. just not for us. Absolutely, absolutely. And so something else that I want to, I'm sorry, did I cut you off? No, go ahead. This is something else that I think is important, right? Because the other part of this is as a, as an intersectional being, right? Like I come from Bible-based theology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when it is appropriate, and when clients want that, and they bring in scripture, or they bring in Bible, and then this is, because oftentimes the ways in which people are brought up inside of their respective religions, um, it does create conflict when they are experiencing very human and very natural urges, thoughts, et cetera, or they're challenged with living in a world that doesn't necessarily always reflect their moral values, all of those things, right? And they might feel conflicted with, okay, I believe this and I want to live in alignment with this, but this also feels real and right and true for me. And what does that look like? And so in that regard, again, maybe a religious counselor would not be appropriate because that person would likely be, you know, focused on pulling them back into alignment with their ideals of what is right and wrong, where that person may be looking to explore what's happening, but still inside of the realm of their respective religious beliefs, values, et cetera, right? Because I don't want to also suggest that it's like, we'll just throw the whole belief system away. Because right. that for a lot of people, that's their, that's their rock. That's what they hold on to. That's what grounds them. That's what keeps them sane in, in, you know, in troubling times. And so it's not about just disregarding it and calling it like, oh, that's too narrow for you to live inside of it. So just throw it all away. And mm-hmm. so when bring in Bible, if it's appropriate, again, if I, when I do bring in Bible-based theology and we talk about scripture and we talk about what God says and who God is and what God means and all of those things, according to, again, Bible-based theology, what I do is let's talk about it because, and let's, let's 
see what you derive, what meaning you derive from the scripture. And where is that coming from for you? Because a lot of times what people are wrestling with is not the word itself, but the word in which it was in the way in which it was taught to them by someone else, mm -hmm. someone, yep. someone else's understanding, someone. And I'm not saying that those words and teachings are not valuable. What I'm saying is, again, if we're moving from the rules to the relationship and the idea is that you begin to have an understanding of who God is for you. Then let's take the same scripture and talk about the Bible being a living word and that when you read through those scriptures during different seasons of your life, they have different meanings, they apply in different ways because of all the things, right? So, okay, you have been taught this particular scripture in the context of this particular interpretation by this particular person in this way. Mm -hmm. The same scripture, you're reading it right now in a different context. Now we're reading in therapy because these two things do not have to be mutually exclusive. Therapy and your religion or your spiritual practices and beliefs, not only should they, do, do they not have to be mutually exclusive, I don't think that they should be. Mm -hmm. Because if the point of therapy is to help you develop skills, tools, and insight to support you in creating a life that feels what you define as good and healthy, and if spirituality is a part of your practice, then I, as your therapist, should be tapping into the tools that you already have mm -hmm. to support you and using them in the ways that you define as effective for the life that you want, right? And so if you already have a set of tools, I'm not going to just come in and be like, no, your hammer ain't shit and use my hammer. No, <laughs> you already have a hammer. Let's see how we can probably use this if we're trying to build a house. It's, it's, we could probably use this. Let's, let's talk about it, right? So when we're bringing that in, it's like, okay, you're struggling with this because you're, you're believing that the Bible says this or God says that. And if you don't, whatever. Okay. So let's talk about it. Let's read it. Let's break it down based on this. What is this? And we just go through it. And a lot of times what they find is there's an opportunity for nuance. Yep. An opportunity for application in ways that are more personal. Yep. It's not even about trying to bend and stretch the word to make it like fit. It's like, no, it's not about that. It's about understanding that if we're going and now we're getting ready to go deep, I'm just going. If we're talking about a God that created us all and knows us from the beginning to the end, knows the hairs on our head and gave us purpose and we were in the womb and we're talking about all these things and that is what you believe. And if that is a person, my client, this is not me projecting, this is them coming in with their own, this is your belief. Mm -hmm. If you believe this, you're struggling with how you're showing up because you feel like, oh no. But if this is the God that we're talking about, and we're saying that God created each of us individually and that God doesn't make mistakes, why then would this God not speak to you in a language that you understand and connect to you and reach you? We hear about God showing up as a burning bush and God showing up as a staff and this and God doing. We hear about these things, God showing up in all these miraculous ways to reach God's people and to sing God's message. Why then do we believe that magically stopped and now all of a sudden only a handful of people in the world can actually talk to God and we got to wait, we got to call God on three way through the past. Why did that when did that happen? <laughs> did God stop talking to each of us individually in the voice that we can hear and understand? It is said over and over that God spoke in a whisper to this person, that God showed up all these different ways. Yes. Whoever needed to be reached for whatever message needed to be heard, 
So give yourself the same opportunity to connect with God in a personal way and hear from God in an individual way, such that the message that is designed for you in this season of your life can reach you in a way that doesn't create shame, which then only drives a wedge and creates distance between you and your God. Yep. And if you recognize God as a source of health and support and strength and all of that in your life, then you need to be able to access God directly and not have to wait till somebody let you talk to him on the phone on Sunday. Right. Right. That's, that's what I'm going to say about that. And so when we start to dive into some of the ways in which scripture has been twisted and bastardized in our culture, and people start to develop their own understanding of and relationship to their concept of what or who God is, it starts to free them in a way that the shackles of shame that are often handed down through people trying to, I want to choose my words wisely. <laughs> I don't want to ascribe malice. I don't want to do that. I don't want to ascribe malice. I, I do want to acknowledge that there is malice. There are people who do intentionally misinterpret and manipulate the word. I want to acknowledge that, but I don't want to assume that everyone who is preaching in a pulpit is doing that. I don't think that that's fair. That that's right. fair. So I, I want to say that perhaps that person got a message from God that was for them. And then they try to take on the responsibility of passing that along to an entire congregation in a context that didn't apply to everybody. And maybe you heard that message and you internalized that and you thought it meant that you were wrong or bad and it didn't. And this is an opportunity for you to get in direct contact with whoever you pray to, so that you can get a message that applies to where you are and who you are in this moment of your life, because you're worthy of that same kind of guidance. And you don't have to wait for somebody else to be a messenger or vessel for you. Although we value those people. Mm -hmm. to also understand that that is what they are right yeah they are not the source they are a resource right and you have the power and authority within you to access directly whoever your god is to get whatever you need to know from them about who you are right now and that if what somebody else is saying about who god is to them is not landing for you you don't have to take it and I think that's the freedom that people need when it comes to hearing about who God is. They, I think what is assumed is, and it's the same you were saying about earlier, um, Sunita, about like, oh, because you're the therapist and you're the licensed professional, I'm trusting you. Right. Oh, mm -hmm. you're in the pulpit with the robe on, then you must got it. You, you got to know. And so whatever you say is law. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think that's why these conversations are so important to have every topic that we've touched on in the since we've been talking, because when we assign authority to things that are directly impacting our lives, it's like we give our autonomy away to people that don't even have to live this life that we live in. And so for everyone who is listening to this episode, I'm glad that they heard someone, a professional with mm -hmm. mental health wellness, give us options mm -hmm. and guidelines. Like y'all don't have to do everything the way that you're told to do it. Like exactly. do 
what's best for you and that I know you give that voice pretty much in everything that you do. And that's why I thought it was important to have you here because we be needing help, nigga. <laughs> <laughs> and that's we, I'm talking about we, us, me, yes. collectively. <laughs> All of us. So yeah. this is this has helped tremendously. I feel like we could go a whole nother hour, but we not drink champ, drunk champs, drink champs. Oh, Jesus so. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on here, Joy. This was a pleasure. I'm probably going to listen to this a million times just so um, I can. And um, outside of this, Joy, I might have to hit you up because I have some questions and some things I need to discuss. <laughs> I need to, look, I need a resource. So now you're my resource. So <laughs> Yes. If there are any, anything, any where that uh, our audience can contact you, you can let us know now. We'll also make sure it's in our summary so that they can reference there also, but. Yeah, um, so I'll be all over the place, but I think the two best places, I'll be fickle, but I'll be on Instagram. So I'm on Instagram at joyhearts, J-O-I-H-E-A-R-T-S. You can follow me there, I love to share my insights and with revelations in my long ass captions. If you read through them, it's, it's something in there for you. I promise. Gems. <laughs> and then um, the other thing that I am, that I'm building and looking forward to current, continuing to nurture moving forward is my text community. Um, mm-hmm. So if you would like to be a part of that, you can text the word love, L-O-V-E to 323. 323- 629-8508. I like to send weekly messages of encouragement and reflection. And we often hop on, not often, sometimes we hop on and do what I call text talks where we just hop on Zoom and I cover different topics and we just chat. We have conversations. I offer a framework or guide book for you know different topics from we've done boundaries, we've done, you know, writing a personal mission statement, we've done spirituality and sexuality so just any of those things so if you want to be a part of that community and get some intimate connection and conversation with others who are exploring this life journey then you can join me again there 323-629-8508 text the word love and you will be in there like swimwear and that's it (laughs) (laughs) of course you can find me and Tamara at obi podcast on instagram and twitter and our respective personal pages. Mine is the purple onion. That's two E's. And Tamara. Mine are different, um, but just look <laughs> for me on Twitter. It's easier on Twitter. Um, it's Tam underscore Savage on Twitter. That's the easiest way to find me. <laughs> yes. So thank you and show up next week. Yes, please do. We got some more good stuff for you guys. So thank you all for listening and have a great day. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at OVI Podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Audible. And thank you for listening to Outside the